Aloha Wana listeners. I am so excited to be back podcasting after taking a little bit of a break to update my editing technology. I wanted to again thank all the patrons because their support is what has allowed me to very easily invest in myself and buy a new laptop so that my editing can be much faster. On this episode, I interview Al Otro Lado's supervising attorney for the Border Rights Project, Holly Webb, and we discussed the negative effects of Title 42 and how it's particularly affecting asylum seekers. We discussed the long-standing barriers to asylum that had actually been present even prior to the enactment of Title 42 and point out the disingenuousness of the law's alleged purpose of preventing spread of COVID-19 as compared to other border policies that, for example, allow freedom of movement for U.S. citizens and LPRs, but apparently not for people who are seeking asylum at the border. And finally, we criticize Biden for being nearly as bad as Trump uh, on immigration. If you would like to get early access to the public episodes, and if you'd also like to get access to the Lit Review, which are book club style chats with women of color, then I recommend that you become a Patreon. It's a way to support me and my work since I am a one woman show doing the, the hosting, producing, and editing of the podcast. So any little bit helps and another way to support the podcast that costs zero money is leaving an Apple podcast and review. Thank you to the anonymous individual who left a five star rating on Apple podcasts. Thank you so much. And also just wanted to encourage you all to leave a rating and a review because the reviews are what people can read to get a better idea of what it is that people love about this podcast. You can also follow at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to continue the conversations that we're having here, there. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. Today, I am very excited to have Holly Webb, the supervising attorney of the, is it the Border Rights Project? That's correct. Okay, of the Border Rights Project of Al Otro Lado, a nonprofit focusing on immigration border issues, U.S.-Mexico southern border. And we are talking today about a very important issue that unfortunately has extended from Trump into Biden Biden's administration, which is Title 42, a policy that has essentially closed the southern border to anybody who arrives without documentation, so essentially asylum seekers. And I wanted to ask someone from Al Otro Lado and you, Holly, to come on and talk about what the effects of Title 42 are on the ground, because not many people are talking about it. I mean, not many people are talking about Title 42 in general, but then also, I think when it is talked about, it's like this underutilized law, this obscure piece of U.S. law that the Trump administration took advantage of. But 
I think there's not enough talk about what is actually happening on the ground. And there's actually a lot of really vitriolic, false narratives that are being espoused by various people on the right, including Governor Ducey and Governor Abbott about this crisis at the border. And it's being so distorted because the true crisis at the border is Title 42. So, um, but just, you know, before getting more into it, I just want to say, Holly, thank you so much for coming onto the show and just ask how you're doing today. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me today. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm here in Tijuana, Mexico. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm surviving this week. Is what is Tijuana like right now? It's kind of muggy right now. It's you know it's it's hot at this time of the mm. year, but it's, it's not bad. So. <laughs> well, that's that's great to hear. So yeah, I wanted to ask, just first question, straightforward. What is the effect of Title Forty Two on the ground right now for asylum seekers? I would say that the effect on the ground right now is horrific. It's it's created mm-hmm. a backlog and just this bottleneck of people who've been waiting years and years at this point mm-hmm. for the ability mm-hmm. to seek asylum in the U.S. And and doing that, you have this concentrated these concentrated populations of people who are already very vulnerable who have been fleeing danger in their home countries, and now they're also being targeted by organized criminal groups and people who are taking advantage of their situation and their, their position in Mexico right now. So it's incredibly dangerous They, you know, many of these people are waiting in border cities that were already dangerous before these kind of policies were in effect. And these border towns are dangerous, I think, and it's they've become more dangerous in parallel to the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you break that down a bit for the listeners? Yeah, so... Especially as as the border has closed, many people under, for example, let me start a little bit earlier. So under mm-hmm. the Trump administration, the policy known as MPP was put into effect. And that's called that was called actually the, the real name is the Migrant Protection Protocols, which is very ironic because <laughs> it put people in incredible danger. We more colloquially, we say that it's called the Migrant Persecution Protocols because that's a lot more accurate. But so when that closed off the ability of people to just go and seek asylum without either being metered in a line or being sent back to Mexico for their case, people had to wait in these dangerous border cities. And so we see a lot of of organized criminal groups who are coming in and they're kidnapping many people or they're extorting people. They're robbing migrants because it's it's easy for them. It's you have this group of vulnerable people who are all Mm -hmm. having to wait in these cities. And or they're they're all in shelters, for instance, and in, in many places. So it's it's very easy to find them and to and to target them. Right. And I think this has also increasingly become a problem with the increased use of deportation and expedited removal on the part of the US because the or the reason that organized crime has been able to target migrants is that they're they just have become aware of, kind of these visual markers of migrants and recent deportees like for example, recent deportees will be deported without their shoelaces. And so that's kind of like a telltale marker for organized crime to target these individuals. And on top of that, how increasingly difficult it is to cross the border successfully and to be able to claim legal relief is that was already an issue. And then, as you say, remain in Mexico or the MPP came into place. Just wanted to say that the, the program has been referenced in many different ways, remain in Mexico or the migrant protection protocols, but those, those are the same 
they're referring to the same program of placing people on a list, restricting the number of asylum seekers that can enter to claim legal relief on a certain day. And then also, so as to not detain people on the U.S. side, giving them court dates, but forcing them to wait in Mexico in dangerous conditions. And then Trump implemented Title 42. So could you just explain what Title 42 is? Yes, absolutely. Title Title 42 is an order implemented through the Department of Health and Human Services through the, the head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. This was under the Trump administration after the pandemic started. And as we all know, the Trump administration was very skeptical of the pandemic in the first place. So it was very, this was very, um, it was a very thin veneer to keep out migrants. Um, this was at the same time that Trump was saying the pandemic was a hoax, all of these things. And that for Texas right. in the same way with the governor refusing to do mask or <laughs> mandates or anything, yes. while also saying that the migrants are going to bring oh COVID. And so it's, it's a very thin veneer just to keep out migrants. But the, basically what the, the rule is, is that the CDC is saying that people who are coming from places where COVID is, is spreading in order to prevent COVID from spreading further in the U.S., they're closing the, the border and the ports of entry to those people. And so in this case, that would be that's the Mexico border and the, the people who have been waiting to seek asylum. However, what Title 42 does not do is that it does not close the border to U.S. citizens or um, legal permanent residents. So people who are U.S. Right. citizens can come and go as they please. And there's no mask requirement or COVID test requirement. So yes. You know, you have this this parallel system for asylum seekers and then, you know, people who are U.S. citizens can come and go. So it's really not completing any purpose of preventing COVID. Yeah, you know, thank you for saying that. I, I try and point out the contradictions of the GOP agenda because even though <laughs> Trump really has put us in a place where it feels like we're post-facts, post-truth, <laughs> and it's all spin, but... I guess, uh, yeah, the optimistic part of me wants to think that the facts do still matter. And, you know, with Governor Abbott, he he recently contracted COVID and um, it's- I saw that. <laughs> it's, yeah, and it's very likely that he contracted COVID from a very large GOP fundraiser that he went to that was maskless. And Zona, which is, Shimona focuses on the resistance happening in, in Southern Arizona, Ducey is employing the same kind of political opportunism. He, he, okay, so this is, this is Ducey's latest thing. He is only allowing the transfer of federal funds to, to dis, to school districts if they're fully in compliance with all of Ari with Arizona's specifications around COVID, which means that no, that no school can promulgate a mask mandate because Ducey has said that that's not possible. And if a school does implement a mask mandate, then they won't be receiving funding from- Wow. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's- Yes. <laughs> that, so, okay. Just the level of absurdity yes. there. there. There's just so much going on. <laughs> in that. I know, I wow. know. And and so, and then also, so there's, there's Ducey's just like blatant mismanagement of COVID and his constant- showcasing and he's just, he, just putting on a show about how COVID isn't real. He's lax on COVID. And yet when it comes to migrants, suddenly COVID is a very serious concern of Ducey. He's him and Abbott asked for outside state law enforcement to be deployed to 
the U.S.-Mexico border. He also has extended the Arizona National Guard's border security mission, quote unquote, for another year. Oh, wow. And this is, yeah. And this is all, yeah. And this is all despite the fact that border residents, the Arizona Border Counties Coalition, which is a coalition of border representatives, the four Arizona border counties, have come out and spoken against Ducey and said, when he tried to do this in April with the National Guard, they were like, we don't need increased law enforcement presence. We need logistical support for transporting migrants because some small Arizona towns don't have the infrastructure for this, but we don't need increased law enforcement presence. <laughs> the border is already one of the most policed areas of the United States. And exactly. So, so there's that. And then also, as you say, U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents are able to come and go. And I really want people, you know, because I, I've seen, you know, myself included, I took a vacation in June and I have seen people are increasingly traveling abroad post-vaccination. And I really need those folks to step back and think about how they are free to do that. And there are people who are asylum seekers who have been persecuted in their home country, who have been languishing in these Mexican border towns for years, who have not been allowed to cross the border ostensibly because of COVID. And yet you're able to go wherever because you're a U.S. citizen. No, exactly. No, and it's, it's interesting, too, because I travel to San Diego frequently. And, you know, here in Mexico, it's still every every store, every location requires masks. Mm. You you have to wash your hands, step on, you know, the sanitizing mat. Every Everybody's wearing masks everywhere here. And then you cross into San Diego and it's like no one is anywhere. And so it's just, you know, another illustration of how ironic and, and terrible and pointless this policy is in keeping out people who are, who are so, so vulnerable here over this under the facade of, of preventing COVID. Right. Right. The ironic thing is that there's there's so many countries that are handling this much better in terms of prevention than the United States. And so when you look at politicians' motivations, it's just it just the only explanation is xenophobia. Exactly. No, absolutely. Can you talk about which populations have been particularly affected by the policy? You know, for example, Central Americans who yeah, I guess before making assumptions, which populations have been particularly affected by the policy? Well, I would say the majority of the, the migrants at the border are Central Americans, but it's definitely not all. There, there, right. are, there are thousands of Haitians. There are thousands of people <laughs> from, from African countries. There, you know, it's we really there are people, there are at least a few people from places all over the world. But yeah. in terms of, you know, and every every population has different issues, you know, p- black migrants face right. extensive racism and, and mm. even more xenophobia mm-hmm. in Mexico. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they can be mm-hmm. in, in an extensive danger from that. Also, there's the language barrier. Right. Many people who speak Haitian Creole have also learned Spanish through, mm-hmm. through their journey and time in Mexico. But but some right. people haven't. It's incredibly right. difficult. There aren't materials. There aren't, you know, guides to anywhere that they are that are in Haitian Creole. So that's that's incredibly difficult. For the Central American migrants, right. there's a lot of there's a lot of bias and xenophobia toward them as well. Um, you you see that it's mm-hmm. you know the the rhetoric and the narrative that Trump put out really I mean it, it trickled down I mean it's it wasn't limited to the U S other countries mm-hmm. and other other places have sort of adopted mm-hmm. those those viewpoints and not obviously not everyone but people have people heard that message. Yeah, and I think it's important to also recognize the Mexican government's complicity in extending the U.S. southern border to its own southern border and being complicit in the detention of, you know, largely Central American migrants and how it's for the folks, for Mexican people on the ground who are absorbing these messages, they're getting it from both the United States government and the Mexican government. 
Absolutely. And one thing with that is that the U.S. will leverage trade policy and or COVID Mm. vaccines, for instance, to, you know, kind of strong arm the Mexican government into enforcing the southern Mexican border more so. Right. But definitely, I mean, it's definitely that that message, that xenophobia is coming from from all angles. And it's but yeah, back to, you know, vulnerable populations, I would say, like, within those within the groups from different countries, you know, women and children are always vulnerable. LGBTQ migrants are always vulnerable. It's yeah, it can change, you know, the it, mm-hmm. it always depends mm-hmm. on where you are and, and what the circumstances are. But it, most people who are fleeing they're traumatized people. They, they, maybe they have medical problems that couldn't be treated in their country. They experience right. horrific events and they need, right. they need resources. They need psychological care. They need medical care. And it's just, there's no way to access that for most people. Why do you think that Biden has not ended Title 42? Why has he decided to extend this Trump policy, you know, in particular when he ran on promising immigration reform and promising to rescind Trump's policies in particular around immigration? I think that this is just my personal opinion on this. I I think that Biden is trying to walk that line between and please everybody, which is really going to please nobody and not help anyone. But I think he's trying to, you know, keep the political parties happy and appear tough on migration, quote unquote, at at the same time as trying to claim like that he's done more humanitarian work to improve that than Trump did. But it's really it's just creating a bigger mess. Right. And yeah, and I, I think one of the one of the frustrating things for me about the coverage of this quote unquote border crisis and the quote unquote unprecedented surge of border crossings is that those stories, even when it's NPR or or similar outlets, they're not giving the context of how this backlog was created by the U.S. government was absolutely right. And it's kind of that talk actually demonizes migrants and and it's I will say that this is also in line with how Latinxes have been talked about in in the discourse around migration for a really long time or just Latinxes in the U.S. there if you if you well I (laughs) I I did a discourse analysis of how Latinx Latinxes are talked about in in relation to bilingual education and always there's this these metaphors of floods waves and it's this i think this latest set of reporting of unprecedented surges is really more of that and like as you say there's there's other migrants that play there's anti-blackness at play as well yeah and obviously Afro, you know blackness is included in latinx and latinidad as well but i i just kind of wanted to point out that it's biden it's like the government not redressing its own harm and then also just people slipping into these really easy racist narratives that I think a lot of us don't even question. You know, like I think it's probably normalized that we talk about floods and waves and, you know, like the overwhelm of migrants and that we don't really realize that it's xenophobic, especially because the U.S. 
is very bad in terms of the like richer developed countries and accepting refugees. Trump dramatically limited the refugee cap. That not many people have been accepted. It's still been under the sort of the COVID policies of keeping the centers for processing shut. But I don't think that Biden has, I mean, he maybe in theory he raised it, but I know that those people have not been allowed to, to enter. I know mm. that we haven't accepted, you know, a new, like a higher number than, than Trump right now. Right, right. And it, I think he he did slightly increase the cap, but it was only after there was a wave of criticism from yeah. advocates. And it's just disheartening that, well, no, I mean, I guess this is with every politician, right? We just have to be on them to, to fulfill their promises. But it's really sad that it's that's what it takes to even get these people in power to comply with just basic norms of human rights. Right. Right. Can you so can you share like what the obligations are under U.S. law and international law for accepting asylum seekers and how we're not abiding by that right now? We're, we're definitely not in compliance with that right now. Under the Refugee Convention, we're supposed to take anyone who presents a fear of returning to their home country, give them a fair asylum process. There's also what's known as the Convention Against Torture. Anyone who is afraid and, ha- and can show like a, a Mm-hmm. For that, the the standard is a little bit higher. You have to show that there's mm-hmm. higher than like a 50% chance than you would be tortured in your home country. But anybody who can and sort of pass the threshold of that, at least like at the border, if they even and articulate like a fear of, of that, they're supposed to be given a chance in due process and to be able to prove those fears in, in an immigration proceeding in the U.S. Yeah. And also before a neutral arbiter, right? Because one of the problems that like one of the shit shows under Trump was the introduction of the Pacer Har pilot program where it was border patrol agents who were doing asylum interviews and kind of doing the final adjudication of people's asylum cases and they're not trained I mean actually immigration aren't really trained either <laughs> it's, another, it's another story <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was thinking that too no it's 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 really a, it's a it's a disaster all around like I mean the court system as it is it's it's right. anything but neutral. I mean, it's if you look at the hiring mm-hmm. process, most of the people who are immigration judges mm-hmm. were former ICE attorneys mm-hmm. or DOJ attorneys. You don't see a lot of people from the private bar or right. who worked for nonprofits or, you know, or private immigration attorneys becoming immigration judges. Right. It's very, very rare. But even then, it's like that is preferable to the Border Patrol agent at the border adjudicating your claim. Uh, yeah. Which is sad. But yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a very low standard. I know it's, oh God, it's so depressing. How do you keep your morale? How long have you been an attorney? For me, I've, I've only been an attorney uh, since the Trump years. So <laughs> I'm also in the same boat. I, I kind of oh, learned okay. immigration under the Trump years. So it's oh, kind God. of, I mean, when people talk, when older attorneys talk about things before this, it seems like a foreign concept to me. I know. So do how do they keep morale? I mean, what? How? How? I mean, I think in talking to clients and seeing what they've experienced and the hope that they still have, and like, and also the the hope in in the U.S. that they hope that they, you mm. know, that this will be better for them, that people will treat them better, that that you know, that they'll be shown fairness. That this hope that they have, like that, that motivates me to try to make that a reality. I just, you know, it's if if they can find the strength to keep going under these oppressive regimes mm. and fascist policies, then that I can definitely keep going and, and fighting with the privilege that, that I have in my position. Right, right. So what is al otro lado's or if al otro lado doesn't have 
a vision for this. What is your vision for a humane asylum system? We've talked about before, the asylum system as it is now, our, our director, Erica Pinero, uh, said this in an interview before, but, you know, it trades on, on human trauma. Basically, people are trying to show, you know, it's like you're, you have a judge who's like deciding who has the, the correct form of trauma that, get, you know, fits within the laws and whose trauma is the most extreme. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's wrong. I mean, that's, that's a horrible system to have. Mm-hmm. People should have the right to live where they want and people should have the right to be safe just as a baseline. People should be able to live safely mm-hmm. with their families. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, any, if, if we're ever going to have a system that really upholds human rights and human dignity, it has to be a system where people have the right to go where they want to go. Right. So that would be something. So I guess that would be something larger than a humane asylum system. That would be like a humane immigration system because, as as you say, people's yeah. lives are more complicated than the categories that that asylum law creates, and there are kind of various competing reasons why people want to come to the U.S. And that that was kind of one of the most uncomfortable things for me as a deportation defense attorney was having to actually to to perpetuate that narrative of U.S. exceptionalism. I won't, I won't lie. Like when you, yeah, I'm obviously still too jaded to go back to doing this. So thank God I'm not doing this anymore. Because when you said, because when you said the thing about how they <laughs> feel hope about how America will be, you know, the United States will be better for them. I just thought about how there was a, there was a queer Latino man who asked me that. And I just felt like I couldn't lie to him. And I just said, there's some places where it's better than others, but there is still a lot of homophobia in this country. And I try to be very upfront right. about things like that with clients as well, because I I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I, you know, it's, and not even, even beyond homophobia right. and, thing, and things that people might experience in that regard, there's racism, there's xenophobia, but also even just accessing healthcare, mm-hmm. even just the basics of daily life, accessing medical care. That's, it's really hard right. as an immigrant. Right. Yeah. So, well, but I, I think I, I I hear what you're saying about how if they can have hope, then then we can have hope, right? And I think it really is their resistance that we need to take the lead from. So, I I thank you for that. Absolutely, I completely agree. The Title 42 exception so far that was that came about because of ACLU litigation has exceptions for family units and unaccompanied minors. Why is this insufficient? Well, for one, it's ended, so it's no, it's no longer here. So it's it's insufficient mm-hmm. in that regard. Oh right, because litigation restarted. Right, right, right. Yeah, but it's well. So there, there are many aspects of that. First of all, the ports of entry before the border closures and before MPP, we're used to processing a large number of people daily. They could, they process thousands and thousands of people traveling by land. They have the, the capacity mm-hmm. to process asylum seekers without scheduling appointments a month in advance. Right. And that right. was sort of what happened with it. it. You know, some ports of entry were faster with the appointments than others, but under this process, basically, people would get, especially, I, I'm here in, in Tijuana, so I work with uh, San Isidro the most of the time. And they, you know, the appointments mm-hmm. would be two or three weeks, sometimes even a month ahead of like 
after the approval date. So people would then have to wait and then they would have, you know, have to trust that CDP would not reschedule or cancel their appointment, which also happened and left lots and lots of people here homeless. Um, and, you know, it was limited oh, to, wow. I think the most people that we had processed in, in one day here was between 50 and 60. And that was several like larger family groups and just the total wow. number. But that's you know, people should be able to just go and present at the at the port like the immigration law says. And that's, you know, and, and if there is some capacity issue with CBP, then maybe we could fund that rather than all of the further militarization of the border. I don't think there's a capacity issue with CBP. That's one of the best funded federal agencies. I don't I don't either. In the United States. And I just I like laugh cry when I <laughs> because if you listen to CBP and ICE spokespeople, you would think that they're like the thriftiest, like <laughs> like working in the basement of some federal yeah, building somewhere. Yeah, yeah. it's like the, they're just like, oh, we, you know, we do what we can with the little we have, and it's like, what are you talking about? You are such a bloated federal agency, and it's like perhaps things haven't yeah. been allocated to the right things, but you don't need more money. No, exactly. It no. <laughs> It's, it's a joke, but yeah, it, with, with that process though, it was, that was always the excuse why they couldn't process more people. They were, they were always, oh, our capacity's it's not working and we're, we don't have enough people. And it, you know, it was ridiculous, but so that was like, that was one thing that was really wrong with that process. The other was that it puts outside organizations in the position of finding people and presenting them to the U S oh, yeah. government, which is, it felt yeah. for us for the immigration attorneys at the border, like running a Schindler's list. Like we were the ones having to yes, decide who dude. could go and who could, whose conditions were the most severe. And that's, you know, nobody wants to be in that position and it's not fair. And it's, mm. it's just really hard to do that kind of thing fairly when the system, you know, when the overall process itself is incredibly unfair. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about all the vicarious trauma I experienced as deportation defense attorney and when I heard that nonprofits were tasked with picking the families that were most vulnerable, I I just felt relief that I was not in that position anymore because <laughs> that's that's very dark. It is a Schindler's List, as you say. I mean, conditions in these border towns are actually life-threatening and dangerous. And picking the list of families, it, it actually can be a, a life or death decision for these folks. And that's... It's, it feels inappropriate to have that be. We, it's it's very done. inappropriate, and we, you know, oh, what I mean, yeah, that's one hundred percent. We, you know, and during that time, we we had people who actually passed away because they couldn't get medical care in Mexico. Oh my god! And we, you know, we had we had yeah. asked the CBP and went through this process, but CBP, you know, didn't schedule their appointments. But there were weeks out, and in that time, we had people that yeah. passed away, and it's that's that's you know the obvious human toll of this kind of process when people can't seek asylum when they're in danger when you know yeah. at the port of entry that's so disheartening and tragic and those are the deaths also that we i think we don't hear about when we're talking about deaths in custody but it yeah. is in in a sense that because it's the it's the U.S. government policy that created that situation in the first place. And that I, I think like our immigration system is so deadly already, even just counting the people that have literally died in detention centers. It's 
scary and overwhelming to think about the people that we'll never hear about because of situations like this. The, yeah. I mean, thank you so much for sharing this. um, I think is what I'm saying because these are the deaths that we don't necessarily hear about that are occurring because of U.S. policy. No, I mean, thank you for reporting about this this topic. I think it's it's so important that that people understand what's happening at the border. I just I feel like so many people have no idea. Right. What can people do to so who like let's say the Akachimana listener who is outraged by this? Who should they contact about this? The what political representative or who, what should they? How can they get involved? I mean, I think definitely pressuring your political representatives is always good and just keep at it. Keep sending them articles, keep sending them, you know, things that are happening that you that you see in the news. I think building awareness is, is a good start in, in some ways because so many people have no idea of, of what's happening. But, you know, it's 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 very difficult because it's it does these kind of changes like this do require a lot of community pressure, a lot of, you know, pressure at the grassroots level and then building up to mm-hmm. pressuring congressional representatives and senators. But, you know, I, I think that that's what we really all have to do is, is start pushing that. Yeah, I agree. And I think that I, I know for that a lot of people, myself included, like the Biden vote really was done because of a hope that he would make the immigration system more humane. And it's been months it's been eight months and I think it's time to hold him to, to count, to account. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of us are in the same position. It's, you know, we, we obviously, we, nobody wanted Trump. People voted for, for Biden right. for different reasons, but it's, you know, you're supposed, you, this is your promise. This is your campaign promise. And we know that they're, they're quite frequently bullshit, but it's, we do have those promises to, to hold these people too. I know it's, yeah, like I I did a Salvadoreños con Biden event <laughs> very hesitantly, but it but it was just because I I really wasn't sure how the election was going to turn out, and was, there might actually have been like the total crumbling of democracy or the facade of democracy. So I was yeah. like, I think this is really important, and yeah, and I. I mean, Title 42 is so arcane and so horrific and so xenophobic that I thought he would, he would have, you know, maybe like not all together at once, but he would, he would have to rescind it. And so I advocated for him and told Salvadorians that they should vote for him if they cared about our diasporic community. And now I'm, now I'm here talking shit because I can't, you know, I said that now I have to redress my, the harm that I caused, you know what I mean? No, the immigration policies right now feel like Trump light. Like it, it, you know, what much, much of it hasn't changed. And, you know, there's also just this lack of information. I feel like the the Biden administration is Mm -hmm. is afraid Mm -hmm. to like put anything in solid writing and have it be out there and be criticized. But in doing so, you've just created this vacuum of information. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And like the agencies that um, typically like to avoid visibility and public accountability are thriving under this like yeah we I have no like you know one of the things that I'm investigating is the ICE's distribution of COVID vaccines in its detention centers because that is another issue where there's a complete lack of transparency ICE as opposed to the Bureau of Prisons which executed its own vaccine program ICE 
kicked it to local entities and was like, yeah, y'all figure it out. It's fine. And didn't come up with any kind of comprehensive policy. And now we're just like, okay, well, who's been vaccinated and who hasn't? Who's had access to it? What language appropriate information is being shared about this, about this vaccine? And it's unfortunate that this is how our democratic president is 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 operating and how he's allowing his federal agencies to operate and not taking any kind of control or putting any kind of accountability measures yeah it's it's really disturbing i mean sadly it's it's it seems to be in in character for every administration that we have but it's it's still it's disturbing well the thing is like i think with trump we saw actually how and honestly with obama as well the the there's really been like the consolidation of power in the executive and trump showed that he can do a lot just through executive orders and it's biden just looks like a coward now because trump was kind of like a bad movie villain who announced <laughs> like his plan before it happened so you know, like we, there was at least that we could prepare a little bit for like the, the negative things that were coming. Well, yeah, actually, you know, the, yeah, I, I do have to critique the liberals who wanted to go back to brunch crowd because they have consistently yelled at me when I've said that Biden's policies are immigrant under immigrate on immigration are very similar to Trump's. And when I posted about Title 42, I've had people commenting, being mad, like, what are you talking about? Asylum seekers are being allowed in. Like, this is false news. This is false information. You're spreading false news. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. On my page, which is like really like the people that follow that are liberal to radical on the spectrum. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's it just because you say there isn't, there has been good comprehensive reporting about Title 42. And so people are really confused. You know, I think, especially if you're not following this issue closely, you probably haven't realized that the border has been closed to asylum seekers for years. And just to make sure that, that everything is clear with that, Title II was renewed on August 2nd of this year indefinitely. So we have no idea when it's going to end. We we also, you know, now that this, this the ACLU and the, the other litigation is, take, is starting back, there is no exemption process right now. Right. Every, you know, people that are being allowed in at this point are people who are already approved for the former processes. And so right now there's nothing new. The only option that people have is to request humanitarian parole, like, it, you know, which is, which is allowed under the INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act. But that's completely at the discretion of CBP. They get to decide if they right. want to respond or not. And most of the time in, in my past experience, they don't even respond. <laughs> Yeah, and there's no appeal mechanism either. Like you can, ju- you just keep asking them. Yeah. So yeah, people are messaging us and calling, and really, we we receive hundreds and hundreds of messages and calls daily of people who are, you know, saying, "I'm so desperate. I'm here with my children. I'm in danger. What do I do? What do I do?" Oh my god, I appreciate you bringing up that that the, the Biden administration recently extended Title 42 and said that it could do so indefinitely, because that to me was a shocking authoritarian move. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, the the language in the in the um, renewal is is sort of like when the CDC director decides that it doesn't need to be in place anymore and that the COVID risk is is lowered, but it's that's not really a clear parameter and there's no in the US especially where no COVID protections are being taken in most places, it's it's unclear exactly like what would be who is deciding 
what the risk of COVID is and different, you know, cause right. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like if, if, you know, if you're governor Abbott, like really, like what, what is your parameter for a COVID risk? <laughs> like, <laughs> But who also recently said that, you know, he passed a statewide order that state agencies couldn't transport migrants from the border. What? Like, again, due to, to the risk of COVID. Yeah. What? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I thought he was doing that to be like, we don't want to use state resources to help this, these immigrants. But it's literally, it's the COVID that's, that's ostensibly it's why. It's COVID. It's okay. co- he, he blamed that on COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, these are very dire times. So I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this. Those are all the questions I had. Was there anything that we that you wanted to touch on that we haven't touched on yet? I just think it's always important um, when talking about asylum law and, and Title 42 or any of these situations with refugees. I think it's important to remember how the refugee convention started in World War II. And, you mm-hmm. know, the, the big example is in 1939 when the MS St. Louis brought 900 Jewish people but started at Cuba, then the U.S., and then Canada, and everyone said no. Most of the people on this ship <sighs> were children. The U.S. State, the State <gasps> Department sent an official, like, telegraph at the time and said, oh, these people need to wait their turns and wait until they qualify for oh, visas, God. and then they can be admissible. And then, you know, the Canadian government said that if, if this is like the exact quote, if these Jews were to find a home, they oh. would be followed by other shiploads. The line must be drawn somewhere. And that's exactly the same rhetoric that we're hearing now. Mm-hmm. Nothing has yep. changed. Shiploads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the same. The surge, the wave, shiploads. You know, it's the same rhetoric. And right. That, to instill terror and fear. And it's, you know, it's the same thing. It's we're still turning away people who are in life or death situations and sending them to, you know, roll the dice for their life. You know, it's so like my thing is like, can you just cut down the rhetoric of being a beacon of democracy abroad then? <laughs> if, or just stop the interventions well, in Central America and other places. Amen. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. First, first Maybe and we foremost. Can just stop creating refugee situations and blaming them on, you know, the brown and black people of the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that's the other thing about this is that, um, you know, there's such an effort to paint immigrants as the other. And... They're actually not the other. Um, they're not political strangers. They people are here because of of U.S. destabilizing formerly colonized countries, and you know I know about Central America in particular. And like Stuart Hall said, we are here because you were there. Yeah, and that's it. That's what it is. It's so true. Unfortunately, so, but it's it's very very true. Right. Well, Holly, thank you so much for your work and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk about this really important issue. No, thank you so much for having me. And like I said, thank you so much for bringing awareness to this. I am really glad that people will, you know, hear from this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And I hope to have you back on the podcast again soon. Thank you so much. Of course. Bye.